Welcome to Book Fair, a podcast for readers by readers, answering the question, should I read that? My name is Ashley, and I am here with Catherine. Hello, welcome to Book Fair. So Catherine and I started a book club remotely about 10 years ago, before remote book clubs were even cool. We were in college, best friends, but going to different colleges. So we decided to kind of keep our relationship really strong, sharing our love of reading by reading the same book every month. And we found so much joy and connection in being able to talk about these books and things that were really important to us in our own lives through reading these books that we thought we would invite you to join our book club. Well said. Yes, we are opening the doors to our two-woman book club and hoping you all will join us in reading, talking about what we're reading, talking about what other people are reading. And a big reason we wanted to do this is that as lifelong readers, I think the question that plagues us all is, how do you decide what to read? I think often about the scene and about time. I know it's one of both of our favorite movies in which- yes. He is a time traveler and he keeps going back in time and he says, what have you done? He says, well, I've read everything. And I think all the time about how if I had unlimited minutes, I would read every book there is to read. But we don't have unlimited minutes and it's so hard to decide, do you read the classics? Do you read the new releases? Do you read genre fiction? Do you read what everyone's talking about? And I find that can be really debilitating as you see everything on TikTok or on book reviews and have to decide, how do I spend my minutes? How do I decide what to read? And we're hoping that this podcast also helps you answer that question, should I read that? So we will Definitely. talk about the book that we read, and we also hope that you will send in books that either you loved and you want to hear us talk about, or you're wondering, I saw this on TikTok and want to know if I should read it. Will you read it and let me know? And we will absolutely do that. And something we'll talk about a lot is, while we can't read everything as much as we wish we could, sometimes you want to read books for different reasons and we'll dive into those re reasons if it's a beach read or kind of a rainy weekend settle into the couch for 10 hours straight if it's grit is an audiobook or really best held in your hands we'll give you our thoughts on all of that um, and hopefully speak to all types of readers and all types of interests and tastes and uh we agreed a lot but certainly not everything uh and we love talking about this stuff and seeing where those overlaps happen yeah, and I find sometimes that where we differ is the most interesting part of our relationship as readers, because I love knowing how you responded to something when I responded to it differently, and I think that's really the magic of books. Totally. Very well put. So we like to start off with, what are you reading this week? So Kat, tell us, what are you reading, and how did you find it or choose it? Okay, I am reading North Woods. It's by Daniel Mason. He's written a couple other books. I haven't read them. This was my first by him. And it was on a couple uh, awards lists. Uh, we'll probably do an episode on awards lists and what we think about them. But I think I that probably first flagged it to me. And then it was highly recommended by my local bookstore and favorite place in Chicago, Unabridged Books. So I picked it up. It sounded interesting to me. So far, I'm loving it. I'm about halfway through. And um, it's a multiple perspective saga. But instead of shifting between, say, one family, it tells the story of different people who all come to live on this plot of land in Massachusetts. Mm -hmm. 
So starting with a couple of Protestant settlers, and then right now I've gotten up to uh, what I'm assuming is like the late 1800s. It's really interesting, very well done. Uh, it plays around with form. There's some poetry in there. There's some funky stuff going on with he's printed some images of art interspersed mm. in it. Yeah, very interesting, very readable. I have a feeling it's going to be a five-star read for me. I'm liking it a lot. Okay, good to know. Northwoods, Daniel Mason. I will add that to my personal list. Mm-hmm. I just finished reading Red Clocks. This is a book for the book club that I'm in here in New York, my in-person book club. We read it um, and talked about it on Monday. So it is a book, basically a dystopian future that imagines that not only was abortion outlawed in the United States, but it also is requiring that all children must live in a two-parent household. And so it follows a lot of different perspectives. It goes from a hopeful mother to kind of a witch character who's helping people through some non-traditional methods, through teenagers, through a current mother, and follows all of these women and the effects that that reality has had. It was interesting to read it now because it actually came out in 2018 before Mm -hmm. repealed. And so we talked a lot about how it might have been different to read it then and how prescient it was to think about the world we're living in now and what it looks like to exist in this like almost dystopian society now i actually read that in 2018 when it came out because it's a portland author and i was living in portland at the time and so i went and heard her talk yes i thought of you a lot because of portland yeah at the time well i mean it was 2018 so it's trump so it didn't seem that far out of the realm of possibility. But I actually thought about it more <laughs> last summer when Rose overturned for sure. It was one of those books that I didn't really connect to it that significantly when I read it, but then I find myself re- thinking about it more often than I would have thought given that I didn't feel like I was that moved by it in the moment. Interesting. Okay, I didn't love it. It was a three-star read for me. Yeah. It was a really interesting book club conversation. So I was glad to be able to talk about it in a room full of other women who are engaging with ideas and excited about books and also horrified by the reality of the world. Yeah, I think that's the perfect forum for it, actually. Great. Well, we will also talk about the book news this week. No huge news. Um, I did notice something just kind of funny. The bestseller, the New York Times bestseller is Fourth Wing, and I was recently talking to my Mm. brother who is an audiobook guy, which has been very fun. He recently got into audiobooks. He was never a reader. I believe audiobooks are reading. We support you reading in any format you would like. And I have loved listening to him start engaging with books because he can listen to them as he drives. But he described Fourth Ring as (laughs) R-rated How to Train Your Dragon. So if that sounds good to you, that is the number one best-selling book on the New York Times bestseller list. And my brother recommends it if you're into R-rated How to Train Your Dragon. Okay, I laughed out loud when I saw this on the show <laughs> notes because <laughs> I've I heard about Fourth Wing, of course, and l- imagining your brother driving on the highways of Texas listening to this. I know. <laughs> really fantastic. I feel like this speaks to 
the allure of this storyline that people of all interests and types really seem to be enjoying it. Yeah. Which makes me think I should maybe give it a try. Yeah. I was, uh, he said it's kind of his first fantasy book. And I was like, great. Well, I'm so glad you're getting into it. <laughs> so we, we love, we love audiobooks bringing everyone into the fold. Yeah. Maybe we'll have Ryan record us a little bit on oh, it. Oh, yeah. We'll bring him on the pod. <laughs> well, shall we get into our book of the month? Yes. Tell us about it, Kat. Let's do it. We are discussing The Bee Sting. It's by Paul Murray, M-U-R-R-A-Y, who is an Irish author. And he's written a couple books, uh, most notably Skippy Dies, which I haven't read, but it received uh a lot of acclaim when it came out in 2010 and was long listed for the booker prize then and so paul murray's been in the writer's circle for a couple years now and this came out at the end of 2023 and um immediately picked up a lot of hype which is why i chose it initially um it was long listed for the booker and then shortlisted didn't win um, but I usually try to clip through a couple of the Booker shortlist, regardless of whether or not they win. And uh, I'll give a little synopsis of the story. It's worth noting now that this is a tome. In my mind, I was like, this is going to be like a 300-pager. It's about 600 pages. It is heavy. When I bought it, they the um, bookstore owner made a joke that I could take it on the subway as a weapon. It's gigantic. But don't be daunted. I feel like it goes pretty fast. Totally. It is about the Barnes family. They are Irish. They're living outside of Dublin in the Midlands. The father, Dickie, his wife, Imelda, and they have two children, a daughter, Cass, who's 17, and a son, PJ, who's 12. And uh, prior to the book, they were considered to be uh, an upper-class family in their small town in Ireland. And then the economy turns, the family business uh, spikes downward, and they're in major familial strife. And they're all struggling with the financial and the accompanying social decline in various ways. Uh, Dickie runs a local car dealership, which used to be sort of the pinnacle of financial success in this small town, which is the type of town where Everyone is up in everyone's business. Everyone knows how everyone's doing. It's a lot of seeing people in the grocery store and talking about it and gossip, gossip, gossip. So their decline is obvious and severe and causing kind of an emotional embarrassment as well as a financial toll on their family. So each of these family members are dealing with this in a different way. And we see each of their perspectives separately. Each chapter is narrated by a different family member. We have Dickie, who is running the car dealership. Uh, He's taken it over from his father, who is sort of an enigmatic local hero. And now he's failing and everyone knows he is failing. And instead of focusing on recovering the business, he is obsessed with building an elaborate apocalypse bunker, shelter. in the backwoods of their home with this shady handyman named Vincent. I can't that wait to talk you about Vincent. Vincent is a grizzly guy. And Imelda, understandably, is 
pretty suspicious of Vincent and does not understand what's going on with this apocalyptic bunker. And meanwhile, she's panicking about losing losing money and also losing face. She was sort of a renowned beauty in her teenage years uh, and was, I liked the way she was described as being kind of putting forth this posh image. Like, I think he described her as asking for things like star anise at the grocery store, which I loved. Like, she's like, yeah. do you know where the tamarind is? And it's like this little small town in Ireland where they're mostly eating, I don't know, pub food. And then she's panicking and is slowly selling her designer wardrobe, all of the furniture and their giant, I imagine them in sort of a McMansion, trying to raise any disposable income she can and also is sort of scheming and furious with Dickie about the failing of the business. And then the two kids are aware of what's going on, but in the way that kids are, they know that there's problems, they're hearing people whisper around town, but they're not aware of the details. Cass is 17, she's finishing up in school, she wants to go to college, uni, in Dublin with her best friend Elaine. She's always been an impeccable student, and then now that hard times have fallen on the family, she's going out more and more. She's going out with Elaine and their friends, and she is studying less and binge drinking more. And then we have PJ, the young son. He's 12. He's such a dear. It's impossible not to love PJ. He's not really sure what's making everyone so edgy and cross, and no one's telling him. And he is just worried that his parents are going to be divorced. He thinks that that's what's going on. So his parents are going to get divorced and he's going to be sent away to school. And so he's confused, but obviously where something is up, things are bad. And he finds solace in video games and then also some internet friendships uh, on some video game message boards because he's been struggling to fit in in school. So these are all the contemporary struggles of the Barnes family. And then they're also shadowed by the memories of Imelda and Dickie. And as the book goes on, we see more into their pasts as teenagers. They grew up in the same town that they live in as adults and then as newlyweds. And we can kind of see how the past has influenced the, the current struggles that they're dealing with and see the impacts of the decisions they made as, as youths, both uh as individuals and together that was an excellent synopsis thank you Catherine. Mm -hmm. it's gotten really warm reviews so i don't know about you i learned about this book through like best of the year lists how did you learn mm -hmm. about this yeah exactly is the booker shortlist it was on the Booker shortlist. It was on New York Times and New Yorker, like best books of the year, Guardian best books of the year. And I tend to be a little wary of lists in general because you're always thinking about what's left off, who is making these lists. But I do think it can be a helpful way to see anything I might have missed this year. Critics that I really respect, what they're reading, things that they're excited about. And when, especially when a book makes multiple lists, I really want to be able to engage with that and read it. And this book seemed to be showing up everywhere. It was sold out everywhere. Every bookstore I went to, it was impossible to find. And then I went to Books Are Magic because they posted on their Instagram that they had gotten a new 
shipment in. They had an entire post just about the bee sting because there was so much demand for it. So I was excited wow. to buy the book. That's amazing. Um, and it was it is one of those things where you're like, wow, it is 660 pages, and there is such demand for this book. Again, a lot of the reviewers mentioned Skippy Dies. It seems I also haven't read it, but it seems that was also a 600 plus page book. So he loves a long one, but seemed to be a really warm reception for that as well. A couple um, kind of clips from reviews I really liked from The Guardian. They said, you won't read a sadder, truer, funnier novel this year. And I thought that's everything. Everyone described it as like a tragic comedy. And it does have mm -hmm. both of those elements. It is entertaining. It is funny. It is sweet. It is deeply sad. But it just feels so honest and warm and familiar in a lot of ways because it is this family story and you can see yourself in all of these different characters. The Kirkus review that came out before the book was a grim and demanding and irresistible anatomy of misfortune. And I loved the anatomy of misfortune because you do- That's you really know, good watch this family unravel and it almost feels like you are doing like a forensic study of it trying to figure out what happened what was the event that killed this family or that killed this town yeah but it was a really interesting family saga at the heart of it and it's doing well basically everywhere. I haven't seen a lot of negative reviews, Goodreads, which again, I'm kind of skeptical of, but it's got a 4.8, oh, 4.08, my bad, on Goodreads. So people are well, that's quite high for Goodreads. into it. Yes. So people are really liking it. We really liked it. I loved it. I think the Guardian review sums it up. I mean, I gave the synopsis without really giving a subjective opinion on it where you could see how it would just be sad but it's not really a story of suffering it's it's a story of struggling for sure uh but but it's not a total downer <laughs> it's not Shuggy bane i'll tell you that no it's, <laughs> that's exactly what i was thinking of like this is not just like a tearjerker i didn't no. cry reading it and it's not gonna like it's bang you over the head no. with the struggle it feels like life does where things come up and you just have to deal with them but while you're dealing with them you also have to go to work and your kid says something funny and you have best friends and so all of these things come together in a way that i think that's why it felt so honest and familiar because you take the struggle with the sweetness yeah yeah, that's a good point. It's a lot of um, not to downplay the problems of the Barnes family because financial ruin is a serious stressor, but it's one where I could see how if you were in their position, you could rationalize your way out of feeling like things were hard. Like they have a roof over their heads and they have family that they could appeal to and their kids are doing well in school and they've been successful and they're educated and they have what they need. But things are just going really badly for them yeah. and stuff is hard and the relationships are crumbling and they're dealing with their separate traumas and brokenness. Um, but no one is, you know, dying. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's not going to kill a piece of your soul. <laughs> We've read some sad books. Uh, yeah. We like a sad book and I do this, I wouldn't even really consider 
a sad book. It was a bittersweet book in a lot of ways. It's tragic, but it not is, sad. It's a tragic comedy for sure. Yeah. It sort of reminded me of The Corrections. It has some friends in this yes, to it. Yes, absolutely. Very similar to some of friends in this family's you have a hard time feeling sorry for them because they have pretty much everything they need, but man, are they having a bad time. I thought of Crossroads a lot. Yeah, that's probably why it's so relatable. It's just the human error, our capacity to just put ourselves in really all human error. awful <laughs> situations. Yeah. You're like, oh man. It's and no a lot of it is forced here. error. You're like, okay, friends. Yeah, <laughs> it's just like, oh man, why did you do that? Why did you do that? And it's the characters going, why did I do yeah. that? <laughs> Which yeah. is, yeah, it's a tragic comedy. Heads up that we are going to dive into spoiler territory now. If you have not read The Bee Sting and you don't want the plot spoiled for you, go ahead and skip ahead to one hour and nine minutes. Okay, let's start with what we liked. Um... There's a lot to like. I, I think we just touched on it with with some of the tragic comedy. Uh, but I would love to start talking about the parent-child relationships between, especially between Dickie and PJ and Dickie and Cass. And I'm eager to get your opinion on this. Um, but I, I read a couple books that made me think about this this year, especially this one, that exhibits how little you know your parents um and how yes. easy it is as a child to forget that your parent has a full consciousness and history and emotional capacity to interact with and think about the world differently than you do Absolutely. and i think that that blind spot is uh most severe when you're a teenager and you see that really clearly with cass who just abhors her parents uh deservedly at some times because things are bad in the Barnes family, totally. but also in a very teenage way where she just can't give him a break. I think it was like most, this idea was most obvious for me when they go to Dublin because Cass is yeah. going to Trinity where Dickie went. And he wants to show her this experience. And at the time that he is with her, we don't actually know what his experience was there yet. So we are with him, but we don't have the backstory. So we're kind of simultaneously existing with him and Cass because we don't know why this street is important to him. And we don't know what his experience was like. And she doesn't care. She can't she does not care. see her father as a person who would have had experiences as real as hers, which nobody can when they're 17. But you're and standing there with Dickie and he wants so desperately to connect with her that it is so painful. And you just realize, I can't imagine how many times I did that to my mom. Oh, so painful. I mean, I think I probably called my dad after I read this section. Yeah. <laughs> like, how are you? <laughs> Anything you want to tell me about your life? <laughs> just like your now life, things you might have done. Past. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I have a couple of quotes I want to read just because I feel like it describes the parent-teenage relationship so well. And it's from exactly what you're talking about where they're uh, – he's moving her into her, her student housing in Dublin and showing her around. And I think it's worth noting, too, that Cass resents her dad for leaving Dublin 
and coming back to their town. She can't understand why anyone would do that and sees it, I think, as sort of a moral weakness, a boringness. Um, And this is Dickie's point of view. Ash, this is on page 351. He says, they have arrived at a point, he and his daughter, where she can only be happy in his company if she feels like she has bested him. Doing things for her, giving her things, being there for her, that is no good anymore. It's only when she imagines she has exposed some weakness in him that she can be satisfied, some proof of his obsolescence, the uncovering of some embarrassment from his past, anything that can serve as ammunition in what she seems to perceive as a permanent war between them. It doesn't matter that the war is entirely one way. She won't accept a ceasefire or even discuss terms. The only way she'll allow him to relate relate to her is to let her continuously defeat him. That section struck me so hard. And it's the reason I love a switching perspectives and a multi-generational story is being able to see both of those points. This is the only way you get that kind of moment. Totally. The fury of being a 17-year-old girl. And and the I, I love this passage, too, because I can just remember that feeling where it's just like, I am so mad at my entire existence. All I can do is direct all of this anger at my parent and hate them for putting me in this body in this world <laughs> and please distance myself from them in every way that I can. The teenage pieces... I feel like I relate to as a teenager and now I am a high school teacher. So Mm. engaging with teenagers on a regular basis, I see this just like sometimes you just come in and you will wage an imaginary war with me. And I'm like, okay, but this is the war we're having today because that is just what it means to be a teenager in a teenage body. You are so in that world. You are so seeped in what is happening to you, what is happening to your friends, that you cannot see the other people around you as real people. And it was so moving to see Dickie as this father who wants so badly to relate to this child that used to love him. Yeah. And I liked to, um, I want to hear your perspective on this because the book starts with Cass. We get to know Cass first Mm -hmm. and then we get to know her parents and I mean she's just she's so caustic towards them and then we see Dickie's perspective and like this passage alone shows a compassionate insight into his relationship with his daughter that he's you feel that even though he isn't trying in a way that is meaningful to Cass that he he's aware of the way that their relationship is failing and also aware that it's partially a phase um but I didn't get the sense from Imelda I didn't get that from Imelda I felt like she was a pretty detached parent I don't know whether she was supposed to be that way or if I didn't connect with the way that Murray wrote her but I didn't feel the same sense of thoughtfulness and insight between her and her children as I did between Dickie and his kids. He seems to think about being a father and think about the way he interacts with his kids a lot. And we see that through his perspective, but I didn't really feel like I ever got that from Imelda. I didn't. I also did feel that she was more connected to PJ than to Cass. And I don't know if that's just because we start with Cass, who is feeling so antagonistic towards her mother, especially 
because she was softer to her father before the crash. Like it was clear that they had a really warm relationship, but we don't really see any even flashes of that warmth between Cass and Imelda. And I wondered how related that was to the fact that Cass is the reason that they're married. Yeah, definitely. I had that thought too. And that she is like kind of trapped in this life that she doesn't want. Yeah, I think that's probably true. That's definitely what I would think if I were Cass. <laughs> I'd be oh, like, yeah. you resent me Cass doesn't the know. life that you have to live. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. I did think it was interesting, since we are in spoiler territory, we should talk about Frank yeah. as well, as we are talking about the dynamic between the parents and the children. We also have brother Frank. So Frank was Dickie's brother, who was the all-star football champion, beloved in the town, all oh, I almost said all-American boy, all-Irish all boy, boy. <laughs> um, who Amelda falls in love with. And they have this kind of beautiful relationship. And then he dies. And she ends up marrying Dickie. And it's a long time before we understand how that came to be. And there is a moment early on where you wonder if Cass is Frank's mm -hmm. daughter. Because Cass starts wondering that. And Cass never asks, but she talks to PJ about it. She talks to Elaine about it and has this question mark of, is Dickie my father? Or is Frank my father? And I thought that was a really interesting like red herring to put in early on. So we start to try to understand this relationship between Dickie and Imelda, who when we meet them, it's totally frayed and how it came to be. And it's not at all the way that I expected it to come to be. Yeah, well put. And we hear more about how Dickie and Imelda got together as the book goes on. It's through their memories <clears throat> but they don't come linear linearly in a linear manner. <laughs> That's always Line a tough one for me too. <laughs> but we we but. get bits and pieces like we are we see we see parts of their wedding day and then later on we get more of the wedding day and then things add in and that had to be really strategic on on the writer's part. Um because the timeline was hard to keep track of. And it was hard to track what was important and what wasn't important. And I think that was saying a lot about just how we remember things and how yes. we fixate on certain details and certain like lynch points and, and forks in the road later on in life. But as they're experiencing, experiencing them in real time, you don't necessarily realize their weight. And what matters to different people where there's something so interesting about a shifting perspective it's like there are certain memories that you will remember forever that someone else there probably will forget because it has a different significance to them. But I thought a lot about, so with one of my classes, we did Beloved and talked about how that book is so interested in memory. But it too shifts between different perspectives. It shifts different times. It is always moving around because that is how memory works. And this is also a book that is so interested in memory and going back through your memory, trying to comb through, because it feels like all of these characters are trying to figure out 
the moment where everything went wrong. And so they are going back through and back through these memories to think, okay, was it this? Was it that? What if I had done this? Would my life be different? Yeah. And it's not as simple. I feel like a, a common theme is sort of like the revolving door. Like if I had just made X choice instead of Y choice. And I think what this book does really well and Beloved too is shows it's never that simple. There's 12 revolving doors in the scope of this book that if this had been different or if that had been different, everything would have been different. And it's which one do you want to decide is the most important. Um, like the idea of the bee sting is sort of drawn out as perhaps the moment everything everything changed for this family. And it, it sort of posited that way at the beginning of of the book, that on the way to the, the wedding between Imelda and Dickie, Imelda is stung by a bee in the car and her face becomes swollen. She can't lift her veil. And it's sort of led as like, oh, the bee sting is when everything went wrong. And then as the book unfolds, I found myself thinking, the bee sting was not a big deal. And the bee sting wasn't real. First of all, the bee sting was not yeah. a bee sting. <laughs> it wasn't real. <laughs> but a good example of how you can you can pinpoint a moment in which things happen to start or where you started to see things changing, but really it was changing far before Absolutely. that. You just didn't realize it until something happened. Um, and how we delude ourselves into thinking if just this one moment hadn't happened, then it would all be different. But really, it's all racing towards that end. I also felt like as I was kind of trying to piece, because it is sort of a puzzle. As you're going, you're getting these pieces as I'm yeah. imagining what happened. I was like, oh, yeah, okay. She was pregnant with Frank's child when he died. And Dickie just like stepped in. I was like, I will marry you. I will raise this child. And I was stunned. I was too. That that is not what happened. So Cass is Frank's kid. Frank comes home after, or sorry, Cass is Dickie's kid. Gotta get that right. Cass is Dickie's kid who comes home from Dublin. And after Frank's death, Amelda mm -hmm. is completely heartbroken, depressed, yeah. distraught, in bed all the time. And they comfort each other in their grief. Which, um... Obviously, I haven't been in that position, but I can imagine how easy it would be to make kind of strange decisions when you're in that much grief. Yeah. And like finding connection in that shared grief. This is kind of one of the only other people in the world who is missing the same thing that you are missing. Yeah. And then the shame that comes from you know, the small town having to tell everyone that she's marrying her dead boyfriend's brother. What I found so fascinating about this is we learned from Imelda. So Aunt Rose is also somewhat of a psychic. Mm -hmm. And she, when they get engaged, when Frank and Imelda get engaged, she asks Aunt Rose about their wedding. She wants some kind of fortune told about it yeah she wants a and reading yes aunt rose tells her it will be sunny and that she will see a ghost like there's a ghost there and Melda gets so upset but then once frank dies she thinks that he will come to the wedding so the reason she agrees to get married is because she thinks she'll see frank the ghost of frank 
she'll see the ghost of Frank. And once she's at the wedding, she sees herself in the reflection when she has to wear the veil and she's so upset because of the not beasting. And she realizes that she is the ghost at her own wedding. And I thought that was one of the most like tragic images Mm -hmm. of the book. This idea that she has kind of become a ghost in her own life. She was so, she's lost everything she was imagining. And now she made a choice that she was like, oh, I'm in my grief. I have decided it's worth going through this whole thing so that I will see at least his ghost again. And then she realizes the gravity of the situation that she's in too late. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, I don't know, I guess Cass is probably a little older than us, assuming this is maybe taking like a place around 2010, 2008. So it's early 90s Mm -hmm. when they're getting married and abortion is illegal and she's pregnant. So they either get married or she has to leave the country. It sort of alluded to the fact that Aunt Rose could perform an abortion. Yeah. But that would be... Because she she talks about it. Yeah. But it would be taboo and difficult. And and then uh, Dickie says he's, he's in it for the long haul and he's escaping his own tragic past. That is the one maternal moment we get of Imelda. It's at the wedding when she feels Cass like kick for the first yeah. time. And the two of them, I guess the three of them, because she feels cast for the first time, but the three of them have this one moment as a family. It's like, this is our world now. And she returns to that later in the book when everything Mm -hmm. is really falling apart. The last chapter, last section, uh, it's Ah. (laughs) just, it it starts going kind of paragraph by paragraph, each different character. And then it goes to line by line as, as the pace picks up towards the end of the book in the last 50 pages or so. Uh, and it's sort of spinning out of control towards this end. And Imelda is thinking about that moment. About She sort of has this this recognition. I wanted to talk to you about gut feelings too because I feel like that becomes big at the end. She has this gut feeling yes. that something is wrong and that she's been giving Dickie all this shit for not working hard enough and not figuring the stuff out with the car dealership. And then she sort of has this moment like maybe he's not okay and yeah. wanting to find him immediately and tell him remind him of what it was like when it was just her and him and Cass and when they were anticipating Cass's arrival and the love and the excitement that they felt for each other knowing that they had provided safety for each other in that moment and so she comes back to it as like that is her moment of of comfort and home but you don't see it in between those moments much Imelda's in a pretty no blue state yeah I found her chapters to be the most challenging for a myriad of reasons one they don't use any punctuation yeah and i why do you think that is okay actually i know why because i listened to a podcast with paul murray and he said when he was writing it he wanted it to feel more like you were in imelda's head and it was truly just the way it sounded when you read it out loud that it just felt more like you were in her mind okay more of a stream of consciousness so it didn't entirely work for me no, I felt like a, it felt a little bit like it was trying too hard to me. It was like a stylistic choice. Yeah, I, I was agree. Like, okay. <laughs> yeah, I think Imelda was the least compelling character to me. But I don't know. Maybe I would understand more as a as a mother. Mothers. 
Did you relate to Imelda more? That's true. If you are a mother who has read this book, tell us your feelings on Imelda. Yeah, we didn't, we get, didn't her. get her. Um, let's talk about the kids, though. Let's talk about Cass and let's talk about PJ. I really liked Cass, uh, especially in the beginning. I felt like Cass is a relatable teenager. She is just trying her best. <laughs> and something I loved, I marked it. There's the moment when she has her first boyfriend. Oh, I loved that guy. And I thought this was so good on 56 sometimes she wondered if she even liked him but usually she was too busy trying to figure out if he liked her she drew up reasons of of why he might break up with her her nose was too pointy he was still in love with elaine and then i love once she asked him joking but not really if he cared about her at all and he shot right back as if he'd been waiting for the question i only care about <laughs> dead rappers <laughs> And I was like, oh my god, I forgot just how horrifying it could be to be a 17-year-old girl trying to talk to a 17-year-old so boy. Good. <laughs> just like, do you care about me? And he's, I only he care about dead rappers. He was also so inoffensive. And the truth is, like, he, he loved her. He loved her. He wanted to be with her. He kept seeking her out, but she was so just enamored by Elaine she couldn't even really think about him the only reason she's interested in him is because Elaine wanted her to be but I did think there was something really just like perfectly teenage about that passage of like oh I didn't even really think do I like him I was so concerned oh yeah does he like that me? is teenage relationships in a nutshell he was the sweetheart Rowan and Elaine is an interesting Rowan. character because both Cass and PJ are in love with Elaine. Obsessed We don't with her. really know that much about Elaine or we don't really see that much of her as a character. We just hear about her mostly through Cass and PJ's desire to have her affection and approval. And I think that was more the point. It's like not really about the object of their affection. It's that like obsessive teenage need to have the person that you think is the coolest person in the world love you. Yeah, and it starts for Cass very much when we're with her, where it just seems like that, like really intense kind of friendship yeah. that you have as a teenager, where this person's approval means more to you than anything else in the world, and she is cool, and anything she deems cool is cool, and anything she deems uncool is immediately uncool, and you watch Cass kind of go through the roller coaster of that as they fall in love with poetry because they like this new teacher and then elaine throws that aside and Cass is like oh yep okay poetry's out we're done with that she's just like trying to stay on the tide of her affection and then as it develops throughout the book it becomes clear that she has romantic feelings towards elaine and also just like this insane amount of rage built up towards elaine because she just had too much that she put on this singular person that meant everything. Yeah, and then to towards her. I almost wish we got a couple more chapters of Cass because towards the end she's realizing maybe Elaine isn't all that great as she yeah, discovers more about herself and her interests when she's in college. She and Elaine end up living together in Dublin and her her world expands and so does her understanding of herself, which was really gratifying to read. I wish we could have gotten a little bit more of it. I feel like Cass was on the right path. I know. Um, For a 660-page book, it did feel like it wrapped up quickly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 
one thing that I thought was hilarious about Elaine, Elaine was just like such a classic annoying character to me. <laughs> Where I was like, oh yeah, I feel like we all know an Elaine. But Cass was definitely going out too much. But what also seemed like in a pretty normal teenage way for a while. And then at one point, the drinking sort of climaxes in her getting too drunk at her grandfather's yes. uh, like award dinner. He's receiving some kind of community award. Yeah. And she gets so drunk and she passes out at the dinner and they have to take her to the ER. And definitely bad. I'm not trying to <laughs> say that this is not. <laughs> Bad. This is bad. But Elaine latches onto it and just declares her an alcoholic. I loved that. I thought that was an insane thing. It's so funny to me that they're in college and Elaine is like, are you going to be okay if there's alcohol at this party? <laughs> I know that you're an alcoholic. It was her calling it that, that just like cracked yeah. me up. It was because Elaine like, was almost or, using it more as like a, like a fun anecdote a of like, this is yeah. my best friend, friend from childhood yes she's an alcoholic yeah. yeah it was just like the the person who like hasn't really suffered any real tragedy in their life so they kind of like create an adjacent tragedy to to make their own <laughs> to like and they talk about that at the very friend. beginning of the book when it's the two of yeah. them and they're thinking about the like beauty competitions and you have to have gone through some kind of adversity and Elaine didn't have any adversity, but Cass could have yeah. had it because she had eczema. <laughs> oh my and god, it... that's <laughs> And then you do kind of get to this point where she's like, oh, I'm her adversity. I am yeah. like her alcoholic best friend. But then the very last scene, because I had the same reaction where I'm like, she's not an alcoholic. What are you talking about? But then she in the last scene because we're in Cass's perspective she's like oh I had a beer and as it continues on you're like she's had like 16 beers like she's losing it and we don't totally know that because we are in her head so then I was sort of between I'm like well is she who knows (laughs) does she have a problem I saw that more as rebelling against Elaine's you know grips yes but who knows that their relationship Which I was, was great so satisfied by her just like yeah, telling exactly. elaine that's to what it was off. it was a fuck you oh my god i found her so no, insufferable was absolutely brutal but such a typical relationship of that that time of your life and pj loves her in a, a more distant way as the the pretty and unattainable best friend of his older sister they're five years apart they don't talk to each other. He sends her messages on Instagram through a burner account sometimes. PJ <laughs> is such a soft. He's such a dear. He's just such a good. We, he's we a love pure PJ. Heart. We need him to um, be a little more skeptical. He has bad taste. I know, in and friends. I think that's just because he's so kind and he trusts the kindness of others. Yeah, okay. I feel like this is a good point I to know. add in a trigger, the necessary trigger warnings, which we haven't discussed yet. There's some yes. heavy themes in the book, but um, yeah, we haven't talked about yet. Some sexual assault, homophobia, for sure. And then with PJ, some pedophilia. Um, the anticipation of the pedophilia yeah. was excruciating. That was the worst part, for sure. 
because you know as you're reading it you're like this is an adult man yeah pj has a friend on the internet named ethan and they play the same video game and they message about it and kind of from the first message you know something's weird about ethan he's just a little too eager and nice like and he's always trying to get pj he does not sound like come up and hang out in dublin but not in a creepy way, just in like a, oh, I would love to hang out with you. How's it going today? My mom could order us pizza on Friday if you want to come yeah. over. It's like, I have an extra room in my mom's house. But no, you can tell as the reader, you know the whole time that this is not yeah. a good situation. And there's a moment where he's thinking about running away because he's terrified that if his parents get divorced, he's going to be sent to boarding school. This is his number one fear, as you mentioned in your synopsis. Yeah, and so he plans to run away. Then it's like, oh, you don't even have to run away. You can just pretend to run away, and then they'll be so worried about you that when you come back, they'll be thrilled. And honestly, to a 12-year-old, you're like, that's a great idea. So PJ goes to Dublin and he tries to find Cass. Yeah, it did make me think like, wow, how horrifying to be a parent and you just have to scour yeah, and everything Dickie all and the Imelda time. Yeah, aren't paying attention to what PJ is doing at all. They are so wrapped up in their own tragedies. They're not paying attention. No. PJ goes up to Dublin to find Cass. He shows up at her college house. She's throwing a party with Elaine. Their relationship has come to a head. Cass is drinking beers and Elaine is whispering about her alcoholic friend to her paramours that have all <laughs> come over, including the college professor. Elaine's a piece of work. She kind of kick kicks PJ out and PJ thinks, oh, I should text Ethan. And there's a terrifying scene in which you can just see it spinning towards disaster. And uh, of course, Ethan is some creepy old man. But Cass swoops in. Cass swoops in. I loved the moment because we end with PJ and it's like, oh, there's a hand like that reaches out for him in this game store. And you're like, oh, is it this man? But I'm like, okay, at least he's in public. Like at least he is somewhere where someone will see him if this happens. But there was such a the older sister moment where she's running around looking for him and she's like, where would a 12 year old boy go? And it's that same gut feeling moment. All four of them, we know them pretty intimately by the end of the book. We've been in all of their heads. And I really bought all of their gut feelings. I I bought the fact that they all had a real sense of what was right and wrong. You're rooting for them. You see that in each of them. And you really believe them when they know something's off and they need to go home. Yeah. And it takes Cass a second when he comes to visit and she sends him out because she's so preoccupied and then she realizes, Something's off. Like, oh, here, he needs me. Something is wrong. I need to go get yeah. him now. Which brings us to the end. Oh, my God. And before we get to the end, I want to talk about Dickie. I want to talk about Dickie and his relationship with, um, uh, oh, my God, what's his I name? Have it. Rissard. I'm not sure if I'm saying that right. Is that what you, who you're talking about? The mechanic, right? Yes. No, 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 no. I'm talking about his relationship Vincent? Um, with the speaker. oh Willie. 
Yeah. Willie. Okay, let's give a really brief Dickie background. Yeah. He goes to college in Dublin and he falls in love with Willie, who is a man. <laughs> <laughs> and it is a really beautiful – it's such an interesting kind of unfolding in that he has met Willie through this kind of, like, debate club, basically, at Trinity. And he gets invited out one night and then has a horrible experience with the first man he's ever been with. And this totally throws his life off. But then he builds this friendship with Willie and ends up falling in love with Willie. And it opens the entire world for him where he decides he's not going to stay in Dublin. He's not, I mean, he's going to stay in Dublin. He's not going to go back and run the car dealership. It is a future for him that he is excited mm-hmm. about for the first time in his life. And when Frank dies, that changes everything for him. He goes back. He's with Imelda. He leaves Willie. And I think that was the moment that I really fell in love with Dickie is seeing him happy. Because we don't see him happy for really any other time yeah, in the Yeah, and he leaves this happiness and this great love and this beautiful sense of self. Out of a sense of responsibility, but also, I think, fear. I think so, too. There is, like, a shame associated with it and a fear of, can I really do this? Can I really be this? And so it almost felt like... An escape hatch. Yeah, like, an excuse to just go back to the life that he was supposed to have. A redo. not do, like, not take this riskier path that was going to lead him to more happiness. And he certainly sees it that way because I think everyone kind of has this moment, especially Dickie and Imelda, where they're trying to figure out how did things go wrong? How can I get back? And he is trying to get back to Willie very specifically. Yeah, when he <laughs> when he catfishes yeah, him. Oh my god. Yeah, so he catfishes his <laughs> I was like Dickie no. lover. <laughs> Dickie is a classic like such good intentions, <laughs> such bad decisions. Oh, Dickie. Maybe what are we? Yeah, doing? he catfishes his ex lover, who is now like a successful environmental uh activist and academic. And then while this is happening, he's still working at the car dealership and he gets involved in this lurid affair with a mechanic with a notoriously shady mechanic yeah and okay i want to talk about the mechanic quickly because yeah rizard rizard who is that's how i said it okay rizard we'll go with that rizard is mentioned he he's described as shady throughout he's a person of interest he shows up in a shady way and he's because we see him with Cass first. Yeah. He's a um an Eastern European migrant. Am I getting that right? I believe so. So I was interested in that I know immigration is a hot issue in Ireland right now, as it is in many European countries and also here, of course. Pretty tough face for the immigration yeah, issue in Ireland. Rizard <laughs> is not, we are not putting him on any billboards for opening borders 
he is like no. conservative clickbait. Oh yeah, I mean he's a thief, and then not only is he a thief, once he is discovered as a thief, he basically like propositions Dicky, and then blackmails him. And then blackmails him. He videotapes them in the office together in a compromising position (laughs) (laughs) and and then blackmails him violently and aggressively yeah uh which does reveal the shame that dickie still feels about you know his true self but i think no matter how comfortable you are with yourself no one wants to be blackmailed by a sex tape that's probably true but also oh man you really shouldn't be hooking up with your employees especially he was trying to fire him yeah because he for was stealing, stealing from the garage <laughs> you just want to be like dickie <laughs> oh, that was one of those moments that was a real like forced error oh yeah and moment. this is part of why i mean the dickie, garage is oh my god the garage is struggling for nationwide economic reasons, but also because Dickie has to keep taking out hundreds of thousands of dollars to pay off. To pay hard. for this. And people are yes. catching on. And so understandably, Dickie is just stressed out of his mind by his own doing. Yes, but also. This leads to the ending, but before we get there, I need your take on why is Dickie why does Dickie become an, an apocalypse guy? Yeah. Honestly, why does any guy become a apocalypse a plot? <laughs> I think that he Okay, I remember there's a passage in which he talks about being obsessed with the end of the world as a kid. Mm-hmm. And then feeling that exacerbated when he and Imelda get together and Cass is born. Sure. About the we, you know, we've talked about his sense of responsibility and coming back to this family that he really had a choice if he wanted it to be his or not. In the sense of responsibility he has that if everything went wrong, if he, if he were to die in some sort of catastrophic natural event, that it would leave these people in the lurch. Yeah. So I read the bunker as being his way of feeling like he was providing for his family hmm. in preparing to be there for his family but in just like the least practical and helpful way yeah (laughs) i could see myself as imelda being like i I understand that you think that the entire lowlands are gonna flood and we're gonna need somewhere to go and we're gonna need fresh water and we're gonna need to know how to support ourselves and you think that this is an important thing that you need to do for us but mostly what i would like you to do is make sure that we can pay our mortgage yeah. next month. <laughs> You're like, you know what? It would actually help. And for a while, he is really into it because PJ comes out to help him. And PJ's into it. Yeah. And Cass was into that kind of thing when she was younger. Yes. Like the bunker is important to all of them. So the kind of shed in the yeah. back was important to Frank and it was important to Dickie. And then it becomes important to the kids. And it is this place in which. Everyone seems to go when their project. life is falling apart. Like it starts yeah. with Frank when he gets kicked off the football team and he then starts 
just like hanging out in the shed slash bunker doing a bunch of yeah they convert the shed that's been on the property for you know as long as they've had the property so it was first used by frank as a a little hideout it's used as by various family members as hideouts yes. and places to because that's where Cass space. goes then, when she starts kind of deteriorating. Yeah. That's where PJ is going when he feels really on his own. So it, it it does become kind of this space where all of the characters hide out. Yeah, and then they start turning it into this the apocalyptic bunker. Doomsday With this plot. handyman, yeah. <laughs> Vincent, who is... Who is insane. <laughs> Who's crazy? He's just like a crazy right wing prepper. He's just but like he's also killing really... squirrels. Yeah, and I have a feeling he is sort of a calming presence for Dickie because Vincent is just focused on one thing and that's survival. Yeah. Doesn't care about anything else. He provides like a really set of really clear set Very of Very clear rules. Steps yeah. Rules. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but he also maybe doesn't really know what he's doing they tap this water well and they all they get almost die violent yeah. ill. they're like, like weeks their guts will never be the same they'll probably have to take probiotics for the rest of their yeah. lives but it, he doesn't really know what he's doing but he's committed and he is confident and he has a plan and i think that really appeals to dickie yeah he needs to glom on to someone who believes in his worth and can just kind of tell him what to do and that leads us to the ending yeah when all of the family members converge it's also when their perspectives converge so as you said it goes from chapter to chapter to line by line so we are getting each of the characters in a different line as they're in this kind of horrific storm and dicky is waiting out Rizard and Vincent has convinced him to kill him and then it converges in this horrifying scene yeah where because of this torrential downpour Amelda decides to go get him from the bunker so she is wading through the woods in this crazy rain Cass and PJ are coming home, but they are taking a shortcut from the bus stop, which goes through the woods by the bunker. And this whole time, Dickie and Vincent are set up to kill Rizard. So he is waiting for a sound of a person. And we keep getting all of these shifting perspectives where, as you said, like Amelda is ready to recommit. She's like, it's not too late. We can be a family again. We can do this again. Cass and PJ are there to save Dickie, basically. PJ goes to get Cass to say, like, you can convince him to come out of this, like, bunker. bunker. And it ends with this. It's And they don't know. I think it's important to say they don't know that they're all. No, no one knows that anyone else is there. The parents think that the children are elsewhere. They think Cass is in her house in Dublin, and they think PJ's at a sleepover. Staying out of friends. But it ends with Dickie saying, kneel down, rest your elbow on your thigh, the gun to your shoulder, remind yourself while you're doing this. PJ, 
a click from somewhere, a glint of light. Amelda, it's not too late, we can start again. Cass, gray squirrel, you cry and grab your brother's hand. It is for love. You are doing this for love. Yeah, and so each of the lines, I mean, it's, it feels like it's it's racing. The speed, the, yes. it goes from a couple lines to one line to half a line from each character and it's racing and racing and racing. And it, we know who each line is attributed to, except the last line. It is for love. You are doing this for love. We don't know who says that. I thought it was Dickie. My I thought, feeling of it. I kind of felt like it. They're all having. The it same was thought. all of them. Yeah. But. But it's it was Dickie. This, it was Dickie. Dickie to me is is the heart. Yeah. Of this story. And. It was so interesting because once again it is so long. But I'm like, okay, now what though? <laughs> I know. You're what, like, are we, ah! what are we going to do now that like, did you, who did you shoot? Who, like, who was it? I feel like honestly, what, most what likely Dickie is a bad shot because that is his heart's not Literally what it. I told myself because yeah. I was sweating reading out he of this. I was like, tree. please God, please God. Yeah please God, please God, do not put me through this. And then I was like, okay, what are the chances that he knows how to shoot a gun? It's really slim. <laughs> it, it's, I think it's a 3D <laughs> printed gun that came in like, myriad little baggies off the internet. A squirrel. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I or see like he shot PJ in the foot or something. Like, come on. There's no good outcome though. It's like he shoots a tree. No. Cass and PJ are like, what the hell are you doing? And Melda's like, what the hell are you doing? Yeah. Rizard inevitably shows up and you're like you have ah. to tell everyone what's going on it only confirms the fact that he has really failed the family the family dissolves yeah. or the thing is Rizard is not there but he's Rizard went back to the house oh that's right that's Rizard right. ends up confronting Big Mike that's right regardless it's coming out it's not good it's not whatever's good. happening right now yeah, is not it's not good. good or he shoots a child in further which is involves. the most horrifying of all of the options imagine yeah but it does just show you that when you get in he's just in way too deep he's in too deep he's and i think that's the moment you watch him go from i'm having a fun time with my friend vincent and my son to when he gets in over his head he's like oh yeah let's build a new bunker like that's the real problem is that we need to keep we need to get bigger. You watch him just fully lose it. He just yeah, oh, it was complete delusion. He's like I can't. He just like, cannot associate with the world anymore. And yeah. You watch him dive off the deep end um starting with catfishing his ex for sure. That was not a good moment. That never leads to something good. Red flag. Half the <laughs> I was like, oh my god, Dickie. <laughs> no, no, Because at first no. I was like, yes, reunite with Willie. And I was like, don't, not, not like that. that. Not like that. <laughs> you really need to tell him that Never it's Never like that. Never like that. Oh, Dickie. That was the problem. Such a tragedy. Such a tragedy Dickie and so well done. not see the next step. 
It's like, okay, well, what happens after you catfish your ex and then it's you? Now you yeah. have to explain why you catfished him. Same problem. Where it's like, oh, what happens once you create this bunker? Like, we're not thinking ahead. Yeah. And I, interestingly, the only time that he really is accountable for himself is when he marries Imelda. Yeah, which he was doing to hide from himself. Yeah, really tragic. Really tragic. Okay, I feel like we have to Not end on a Quite beautiful. Yeah. So beautiful. Okay. So well done. Really enjoyable. Often laugh out loud funny. I would love to see this as a limited series. Yes. Okay, so here's... I think limited series, each episode is a different character. Love it. And then the last one is kind of all of them. We're obviously they're all in each one, but it starts, I see the little title block, like, okay, this is Cass, and we get her story. And you're kind of filling it in. And I was thinking of cast members, and I'm gonna be so honest with you, the first person that came to mind is Paul Mescal has to play Frank. Ooh, I like that. I like it. I like it. You're just like a handsome Irish man. A young <laughs> Who's young Frank. a little sad. Yeah. Okay, <laughs> yeah. I love this. Who's just like a little sad. I was picturing um Chris O'Dowd as Dickie. Do you know who I'm talking about? Chris O'Dowd. He's in Bridesmaids. Yes. Oh my god, he would be such like, a good Dickie. Just, just kind of a hometown boy. He might be too happy. He yeah, he'd have to be depressed. We'd have to make him a little more depressed. Yeah. But someone I also, like not conventionally attractive. Or not like he can't be a hot boy. Yeah. Cause that's the thing is I was like, oh, my favorite sad boy Irishman is Colin Farrell. No, obviously. he's too hot. But I'm like, he's too hot. He's too hot. But you need a hot girl for Imelda. She's okay. She's a beautiful not she's Irish, known but known to be beautiful. She needs to be sort of um almost like Instagram. She has to be unattainable. Yeah. I was thinking Rosamund Pike. Okay, that's exactly who I had in mind as contemporary Imelda. And then for yes. past Imelda. I don't know young Imelda. I was thinking like um, Emma Corrin. Okay, yes, because you have to have the yeah. untouchable. Totally. And they, piece of they it. talk about her high cheekbones and she has this sort of like natural allure. I like it. Yeah, Rosamund Pike has the necessary tragicness <laughs> too yeah but sort of and just beauty. like distance from you yeah Cass this isn't um this is an Irish actor and I think obviously if this was ever made into a real limited series Ireland is teeming with talent but in my mind <laughs> <laughs> I was picturing the the teenage daughter in Mare of Easttown who's just in the new Mean Girls do you know what I'm talking about? She's blonde. She was the yeah. little girl in The Nice Guys. Her name is... Oh, what is her name? Oh, did she just play Katie in... Yeah, she's blonde. Andrew Rice. That's just who I pictured visually. She gave me... I felt her... She was very similar to the teenage daughter casting in... I can see the that. character in Mare of Easttown. Okay, I see that. Like, independent, confident, doing your own thing but also really wants to be a good kid. Okay, PJ is kind of giving um, who's the kid from Anatomy of the Fall. Oh, yeah, that'd be good. 
He was great. I loved that movie. Because he, first of all, he was fantastic, but. You need, like, precocious 12-year-old. Yes, precocious 12-year-old who clearly is, like, quite smart about some things and quite naive about other things. Yeah. Milo Grainer. He is French, but he was wonderful. Or the little kid in Belfast. Did you see that? I didn't. Oh, so lovable. Where you just throw, like, any trouble you get into can't really be your fault. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> You're just way too lovable. Like, what will we do? You lovable oh. little guy. You just want to do good things and be loved by your mum. Or your ma'am, I guess, in Ireland. I do think it is. it would be really well suited to a limited series. Oh, absolutely. I would not be surprised at all if this gets optioned. And it's a good, everyone loves a good past and present. It takes yes. a bunch of boxes, like queerness and marriage and being a teenager with technology and family strife, plot twists, self-deception, deception of others, affairs. It'd make a great, great miniseries. Shall we wrap up with who would we recommend this to yeah. and who might we steer away from it? Yeah, definitely. Um, so, answering the question, should you read this book? You should read this book. You should read this book think, if you're willing to trudge through some exposition. True. Not every plot point is critical. But if you're willing to dive into a pretty intense character study, I think this is absolutely for you. It's driven by character more by plot, I think. Absolutely. If you like a family saga, if you are interested in coming-of-age stories, if you're interested in multiple perspectives. I know a lot of people love a multiple again, perspective. Comfortable, like sitting down with a book for a while. <laughs> I think you will love this book. It reminded me a little bit of The Most Fun We Ever Had, oh, which yeah. we both loved, I loved years ago. Yeah. That, like, multi-generational family. So if you liked that book, if you're a Franzen fan, mm -hmm. I think you would really like this book. If you... I think, um... Get impatient with middle-class wallowing, I would skip this one. Yeah. There's a lot of middle-class wallowing. <laughs> Which will either be relatable or just like really despicable to you if it's all yeah. <laughs> fall in the despicable camp or super fair. Don't skip this one. Yeah, and this is not for yeah. you. I I would describe it as sort of between to me this falls between Anne Patchett and Jonathan Jonathan Franzen. It's not as accessible the family saga as Anne Patchett. It's a yes. little more complicated. The writing is a little more sophisticated. Uh the plot is just heavier but it's not as heady as jonathan franzen but it has some of the i'm in the spectrum the clippiness and the charm yeah fantastic i loved it well, five stars for me five stars for me as well we loved this this is a big overlap for us though we both love a multi-generational shifting perspectives coming of age kind of story so this was a perfect moment for us i think this is really where we cross over totally yeah it's one for me that um it's 600 pages but it just it swallowed me whole 
it's an easy read and that oh, yeah. you, you fall into it and it you don't have to work at reading it. The pages turn. Writing fast. was easy too. Very a lot of global global themes but being played out on a very specific stage and i wonder if we missed some specificities of that stage by virtue of not being irish i'd be curious to hear what those specificities were but they did not missing them did not detract from the reading True. experience at all well we will wrap up the next book we will be talking about is small things like these by, by claire, claire keegan, keegan. yeah another claire irish keegan. novel I promise we're not going to only read Irish novels. <laughs> Although true. it'd be easy uh, to do. A lot of good lit coming out of Ireland. Uh, but True. We're going to strive for a little variety. But, but we small heard things like these. Fantastic things Basically the opposite of the beasting in that it is so tiny and accessible. So if you heard 660 pages and said, absolutely fuck no, I will not read that. Check out small things like these. It could be right is- up your alley much smaller <laughs> yay i can't wait if you read it and you have questions send them to us if you read the bee sting and love it or hate it let us know or We'd if something we said really you. resonated with you or you agreed with it or you had a totally different perspective we want to know what you think this has been a delight this has been a delight it always says i love reading with you i love talking with you Oh, likewise. I can't wait to listen. And I can't wait to read with you next week. Yay. Happy reading, buddy.